podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to Two Footed Podcast on Tuesday, August 25th. I'm Dave Hendrick and bringing you this podcast from EPL Index in accordance with our presenting sponsor, LibertyShield.com. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. Check out their services at LibertyShield.com. So today's podcast is a quick look at the opening day fixtures. And I want to have a little bit of a talk about tribalism in football and why it's not the best thing to be involved with. Um, I think the Premier League have done done us a big favour with the opening fixtures for this season's, uh, this season's games. Uh, obviously, Burnley and Manchester United and Man City and Aston Villa, those games are going to be postponed because of United and City's involvement in wrapping up the... Uh, the European competitions this season. So to give them a month off, the same as everybody else got, those games will be postponed and they'll all kick off in, in kind of match day two. But I think there's a bunch of good games here. I really, really do. I'm really excited for them. Crystal Palace against Southampton is going to be an interesting game because both teams are in a, a you know an unusual situation. Southampton started last season looking like a team that was completely lost and ended it looking like a team who could potentially bust away into the top six or seven next season. They were in remarkably good form at the end of the season. They've got a really good manager in Ralph Hasenhutl. They've got good young players. They've already made two good signings, Kyle Walker-Peters um, from Spurs and Salisu, the centre-back they've brought in. You add that to Bednarak, who I think is a really good defender, and Ryan Bertrand, who's one of the one of the consistent left backs in the league. I mean, he's not a top five left back, but I think he's probably in the top ten in the league. And they've signed him to a contract extension as well, so it looks like they'll have a settled back for next year. Um, Alex McCarthy, for me, in the second half of the season, one of the best goalkeepers in the league last year. If I was picking my England squad today. Alex McCarthy would be in it. He'd be my third choice goalkeeper behind Nick Pope and Dean Henderson. Um, I thought McCarthy was remarkably good for the second half of the year. Palace, on the other hand, they didn't have a good end to the season. They really didn't. They were absolutely abysmal in Project Restart. They looked lost. They looked like a team with no identity, no ambition. Now, they still stayed up comfortably. That's important to point out. But at some point, the goal has to be more than just staying up. It really has to be. Because otherwise, what's the point? If your goal is just going to be to stay up each season, to scrape by, to not play any sort of inspiring football, eventually people are just going to turn off and not be interested. 
And Hodgie is Hodgie, and the Hodgson way is the Hodgson way. He is going to do his thing, and, and that's, you know, what he is. What he is as a manager has, has been developed over the last 40 years or however long he's been managing. But at some point, Palace are going to have to look at things and say, right, we finished 14th last season, that's great. You know, we finished nine points above the relegation zone, that's great. But where's the enjoyment of that? Where's the enjoyment of, of that style of play? Like, it's, it'd be different if you were, uh, and this might be controversial with Palace fans, but if you were Brighton, who finished one, one place below them in the league and two points behind them in the league, at least Brighton last season played an exciting brand of football under Graham Potter. They made that transition from Chris Hewton, who's not fully Hodgson, but he's got a little bit of Hodgson about him and sets his team up in a similar enough way, to Graham Potter, who's a much more expansive coach, a much more innovative coach. I would be much more excited to be in Brighton's situation than in Palace's situation. I think Brighton have a group of really good young players, an exciting manager, and an entertaining style of football that's worth watching every week. Whereas Palace, the brand of football is not good. They've got an older manager who doesn't have any real ambition left in them. And they're not producing young players, they're not buying young players. And they are being linked with, uh, with Eberichi Easy from QPR, and he's remarkably talented, really exciting player. He'd be great for them to bring in, but if they bring him in, do they lose Zaha? Because Zaha is really the only thing that has made them in any way interesting to watch in the last couple of years. I, I think it's getting towards time for Palace to make a clean break from the Hodge and go with someone younger. Go with someone more adventurous, someone more exciting, someone who'll develop young players and breed some fresh air back into the club. Eddie Howe's available. Now, he might take you down to bring you back up, but there's there's a little part of me that thinks that being in yo-yo club, going down, always been in you know important games in a relegation battle, going down, and then coming back up and winning the championship or finishing second or winning the playoffs, that's more exciting than finishing 14th playing hodgy ball. Um, I don't know. You know, like I say, Palace and Southampton in two different spots, but both unusual spots. Southampton, despite how they started last year, they should be really excited about this year and the start of this coming season. There's some really good players there. I think they need to get a couple more in, but I, I expect them to do that. With Palace, you could really see them rolling out the same starting eleven that finished last season with maybe Nathan Ferguson at, at right back, the only change. And it wouldn't surprise you at all. The ownership don't want to spend any money by the looks of things, so we'll wait and see. Fulham against Arsenal. Newly promoted Fulham. Um, they've got. I think they're going to have a tough season ahead of them. I'll be doing towards the beginning of the season, probably on, on the, the September 11th show, I'll probably do my predictions for the year. Um, in terms of what I, what I expect the league table to be. I think I'm looking at that week leading up to the season at doing, um, 
five shows and cover four teams each day. Uh, what I expect from them for for the season, where, where I think they'll end up, and then end with with my my early prediction of of the league table. Now, obviously, that will change based on the transfer window not not closing till uh, early October. But um, I think Fulham have a tough season coming up. They need quite a bit. Now they come up with a great attitude, a great togetherness. Uh, Scott Parker has done a, a really good job there. I, I I don't think they were one of the one of the teams expected to come up last season. Um, I think they'll do a better job this year in terms of their recruitment and squad management than they did the last time they were in the Premier League, but then that wouldn't be hard. It's quite a low bar. But facing Arsenal on the first day is is a big, big test. I mean, Arsenal will roll in with Aubameyang, with Pepe, maybe Lacazette or Willian up front. Um, the likes of Saka, potentially Tomas, if they can buy him from... Atletico Madrid, this new defence that they're putting together with Saliba and Gabriel and Kieran Tierney and probably Bellerin at right back unless he leaves. I think that's exciting for Arsenal. And I think Arsenal are looking at a good season of development and progression. Um, As things stand, I don't have them finishing top four, but I think they'll challenge for top four again. I think that's going to be an entertaining game. Uh, Arteta will play entertaining football. Fulham played Pretty entertaining football under Scott Parker as well. Now, their game is focused on playing through Mitrovic. And I think Mitrovic is one of the strikers who will give every central defender in the league problems this season. I think he might uh, be very excited at the the thoughts of going up against two young centre-backs who haven't played in the league before. So that could be a really entertaining game. Then you have Liverpool against Leeds. And this is... This is the tie of the round from the managerial side of things. Klopp versus Bielsa on the opening day. You couldn't really ask for a better clash. Two managers with very similar principles, very similar philosophies on the game. Managers who demand very similar things from their players. Bring a a unity to their squads when everybody buys in. And I think Bielsa has done an amazing job at Leeds and I'm so happy to see Leeds back in the Premier League I think they're one of the giants of English football I think the Premier League is better off with them in it Liverpool is defending champions big pressure on them going into this season to try and retain and also maintain the form they've shown over the last two years which is Manchester City showed last year it's very very difficult to do it three years in a row can I get that 95 plus points each year Leeds will be a big test um, some of those Leeds players are very, very good. I expect Calvin Phillips to be an England international before Christmas time. And I think Bielsa will do a good job in the transfer market there as well. I think they'll be really ambitious. Hopefully the ownership will back him and back the director of football and get them the players they want. We've already seen them go big after Ben White. They haven't got him across the line because Brighton don't want to sell. But you'd expect they'll have alternative targets and you'd expect that the pull of Bielsa will be enough to get certain players in that maybe you wouldn't expect to go to a newly promoted team. But that's a game I'm really looking forward to. Um, Spurs against Everton is another another exciting game. Two of the great managers again, Jose Mourinho up against Carlo Ancelotti. There's uh, There's a lot of history with those two gentlemen. They've got a couple of things in common. They've both been to Chelsea. 
They've both been to Real Madrid. They've both won multiple European Cups. Carlo obviously has won three. Jose's won two. They've won league titles in different countries. They've both been sacked from multiple jobs in recent years. Carlo was sacked by by Bayern and by Napoli. Mourinho was sacked by Chelsea and by Manchester United. They've both got so much to prove this year. And they both take over teams. Uh, Mourinho took over, obviously, six months ago. But they both take over teams that had really disappointing seasons last year. Really, really disappointing seasons. Now, Spurs picked things up after the lockdown lifted. But sixth is, is unacceptable for that squad, um, given you know Champions League final the year before. Um, they will have a lot to prove. They've already started to make moves in the market, bringing in uh, Pierre-Emile Hoiberg from Southampton. I think that's a really good signing. But they've got players that underperformed massively last year, like Deli Ali, like Tangai Endembele, Davinson Sanchez, I didn't think, had a good season. They need work at fullback. They need to get a right back in for absolute certainty. But I, I think Spurs have a top four squad as things stand. I think it's a top four squad. I'm just not sure that the mentality is there at the moment. I think that was a big part of the problem last year. After the crushing defeat in the Champions League final, I don't mean in terms of the game or the scoreline. I just mean in terms of you may only get to play in one. To lose it is devastating. They didn't bounce back well. It seemed like the dressing room drifted from each other and then from the manager, or maybe vice versa. But there was no togetherness there. I'm really looking forward to seeing the the All or Nothing uh, series on Amazon Prime. When it comes out, I thought the Manchester City one was really, really good. And I expect the Spurs one to be just as good, if not better. Because it's a fascinating year with everything that happened there, with the change of manager, with the lockdown. So I think that's going to be really good. Everton finished 12th last year, and I'm sorry, but that's completely unacceptable for a team that have spent the volume of money that they've spent in recent years. The expectations they've built upon themselves, they brought in brands from PSV, who'd done a really good job there, but I don't think he's done a good job so far at Everton. Him and Marco Silva were meant to be the dream team, and it didn't work, and they moved off Silva really, really quick. Now, they went to Carlo who's one of the best managers of all time. We haven't seen him rebuild a team yet and be successful at it. So it's a new challenge for him. Everton, with respect, are the smallest club he's managed in a long, long time. So it's a really new challenge for him. It's something different that we haven't seen him do before. It's going to be fascinating. They're being linked with some interesting players like Alan, like Decoure, who I'm not overly keen on, but you know, he is a good player. I wouldn't be surprised if Wolf Zaha's name gets linked again. They're being ambitious as things stand in the market, but we need to wait and see who they get in. But Everton, this is a big year for them because Mashiri has put in a lot of money and they've used most of it badly. I mean, they, in one summer, they signed Gilfie Sigurdsson, Davy Klaas, and Wayne Rooney and Nikola Vlasic, all attacking midfielders. Four players for one position. And the worst part of it is, the one of them, who's now a fantastic player, they sold Nikola Vlasic. Remarkably stupid. Remarkably stupid move by them. Letting Luckman go was another strange move. 
Moise Keane hasn't worked yet, but I do think if they persevere, I think he can be really, really good for them. I'd like to see him and Richarlison get an extended run together as a two. I think that is the pair. But obviously, Calvert-Lewin last season was very, very impressive. The best season of his career by some margin. So he has earned the right to be first choice. Um, Lucas Digne is the key to them this season. If he, As he goes, they will go. If he's good, I think they've got a chance of pushing for top eight. That, that has to be their, their aim. They have to aim for top eight finish next season. They really, really do. Nothing else is going to be acceptable. West Brom against Leicester. So again, newly promoted team. This is a, a Midlands derby. And this should be a good game. Uh, I really liked the signing of Pereira on a permanent deal by West Brom. It was great for them last year. I think they'll miss Grady Diangana unless they can somehow convince West Ham to let them have him again or go and find a, a quality replacement. But he was great for them last season. Really, really good young player. You'd imagine West Ham would be smart enough to keep hold of him. But that this, to me, is a really exciting game. Billich and Rodgers are different types of managers, but both have strengths, both have flaws. Both have done well at clubs for spells, and then it's petered out. Rodgers, I think, could find himself under pressure this year if things don't go well to begin with. That Leicester board, they've shown they don't hang around. If you're not getting the job done, they will move off you. And Brendan Rodgers, unfortunately for him, despite a brilliant first half the last season, had a calamitous second half the last se- to last season. Coming out of lockdown, they had like a 98.3% likelihood of finishing in the top four, according to 538.com, who are very, very good at predicting these type of things. And they managed to finish fifth. They were third by a distance, and they finished fifth. And it's not even like they missed by a point or on goal difference. Four points they missed out by. The defence fell apart. The goals dried up. They were over-reliant on Vardy, who had a great season, but was getting no real help uh, in the goal department. I think there's a ton of talented players there. They obviously look like they're about to lose Ben Chilwell. Um, to Chelsea but Ricardo Pereira is exceptional Soyuncu is exceptional Harvey Barnes despite a really rough spell after the, the restart is an exceptional young player Telemans and Madison and, and indeed he's as exciting a midfield as you'll find in the league and as well balanced the midfield three they need a, a couple of pieces I, I'd be looking for a, a starting centre back to go with Soyuncu so I think Evans then as your third centre back is perfect Benkovic is your fourth. They'll need a left-back to replace Chilwell. There's good options out there. Talked about a few of them yesterday. And they, they're going to need help for, for Vardy. They need a right-winger as well. That's the other starter. Centre-back, right-winger, and probably left-back now. And then they're going to need help for Vardy. They need someone else that they can rely on for goals. Iheanacho was brought to do that. And maybe if you stick with him, he had a good season last year. and Maybe he can kick on again. And become a you know viable source of goals off the bench and in games where Vardy needs a rest. But they need midfielders to step up. Thielemans needs to step up in terms of his goal output. Madison needs to step up in his goal output. Barnes needs to step up in his goal output. Without that, they're going to be in trouble. 
Um, because Vardy's aging. I mean, what is he now, 34? And his game is predicated on pace. And if that pace starts to go, that could be questionable. But if Brendan Rodgers and Leicester don't start well, if after 10 to 12 games they're in the bottom six, which is not outside the realms of possibility, look for Brendan Rodgers' name to start getting uh, talked about in terms of, you know, he might be on the hot seat. Um, the last game then on the first Saturday is West Ham hosting Newcastle. The battle of, I would say, the two worst owners in the Premier League. Uh, this is something that I plan to, to get into a little bit more uh, in, a, in a week or two. But I think Golden Sullivan and Mike Ashley are the worst owners in the Premier League. Now, Golden Sullivan at least have spent some money, but as it lo- as it looks like, they've actually just lumbered the club with some debt. Ashley doesn't want to spend any money. They've both gone for safety-first options with their manager, I would say, in Moyes and in Bruce. I think Moyes is a better manager than we've seen over the last seven years. I think Everton era David Moyes was a very good manager. I think Manchester United was too big a move for him. And it did damage his self-belief. It changed his way of thinking. And when he went to Sunderland after the spell at Sociedad, he clearly just wasn't the same wasn't the same manager. I thought we saw some good signs from him in both spells so far that he's had at West Ham. Now, again, he did well the first time and then they binned him off. And they brought in Pellegrini because they wanted to go in a more exciting way. And there's nothing wrong with that. Again, that's, you know, that's to be admired. Ambition is always to be admired. But for Moyes, that must have been a big blow because he'd, he'd done well. He'd started to reestablish his name. And then all of a sudden, you know, well, you're not good enough for us. So, you know, on your way, son. So that's got to have been tough. And then they come crawling back to him. And I mean, he could have laughed in the face and told him to go away, but he took the job again. And after a fairly rough start, he had a good last seven games. Now, he didn't have a better run than Pellegrini. Over the 19 games he managed, he took one point more than the 19 games that Pellegrini managed. Uh, they both had massively disappointing cup runs. Moyes in the FA Cup, Pellegrini in the League Cup. Pellegrini had a great first seven games. Moyes had a great last seven games. So they were about even. West Ham have far too much talent to be surfing around the relegation battle. They have a top 10 attack in midfield. They were top 10 in goals scored last year. But they have a bottom three defence. Now, Issa Diop, I think, is really, really talented, but he needs a partner who's going to walk him through games. They've been linked with Shane Duffy from Brighton. Um, I think he could be a decent fit. I'm not sure, though, that signing Brighton's fifth-choice centre-back is really the right move for a club like West Ham, who have ambition. But we'll wait and see. He could just be the right one to come in and talk Diop through games and, and help him settle a little bit better. They need to address their fullback situation. They have the worst fullback situation in the entire league. 
Um, they've been linked with Maddie Cash from Forest and Rico Henry from Brentford. I think they should be looking at maybe uh, Harry Pickering from Crew as well. But I think if they address their fullback situation and get a good centre back, and they have everything you want going forward, I don't think they actually need to do anything going forward other than stick with what you have and try and get the best out of them. I think a midfield pair of Declan Rice and Thomas Suchek is, is as, as good as you find outside of the top couple of teams in the league. Pablo Fernandes is a fantastic player, and as a 10, I think he can be great for Sebastian Haller is a really, really good striker. You paid big money for Jared Bowen. Uh, you'll expect big things from him this season. Scored a lot of goals for Hull, so he clearly has that in his game. Felipe Anderson's a big question mark. There's talk that he's for sale, but they're going to lose big money if they try and sell him this summer. I think they'd be really better off to try and keep him and raise his value back up. And I know people are saying, oh, well, he doesn't fit the team. True, but neither does Easy. Easy doesn't fit this team any better than Anderson, and he's not a better player than Felipe Anderson. Not even close to being a better player than Felipe Anderson at this point. So... I would be looking at keeping Felipe Anderson, playing him on the left. Then you've still got Yarmolenko, Lanzini, um, Diangana, and and Mikel Antonio as your backup front four. You've still got Mark Noble in the midfield rotation. You've still got Ogbonna in your defensive rotation. You've, that's a good squad. Their goalkeeping situation, Fabianski's a good shot stopper, but all of their goalkeepers, all four of them, are over 34 years of age. So they need to figure out a long-term plan there, but it's not necessarily something they need to do this summer. But right-back, left-back, and a starting centre-back, they have to address those situations this summer. They have to address them. I think Michael Keane, if Everton were were looking to move off, and Michael Keane would be perfect, but rumours are that Keane is going to sign uh, a new contract at Everton. I look at that Everton team under Moyes, and the centre-back pairing of Jaggy Elka and Distan before John Stones came into the mix under Martinez. That was his centre-back pairing. I think Diop and Keane could be similar. Um, and Coleman and Baines were the most important players in that team, and that's what I'd be looking to replicate. That's where I think Matty Cash is perfect as a right-wing back, right-back who's you know, naturally wing-backing will get forward non-stop, pickering the same on the left. That then opens things up because if those attacking full-backs are there and they're constantly providing you with width, then Bowen on the right and Anderson on the left, they can shrink centrally. And that's where they operate best. They don't operate best as wingers. They play out to in. They're best in. So if they can step infield and let those full-backs go, and let those full-backs also bring the opposition fullbacks and open up more space, open the pockets. All of a sudden, now uh, West Ham will be a very, very different team. Now, it's possible that Duffy can come in and do that job. Uh, Moyes will know him quite well, obviously. So we'll wait and see. Um, a price is a big thing as well. They need bits and pieces, but I don't know. Um, it all depends on shape for them. They played the back five a lot last year and unlike some teams that use it as a back three to then have kind of two extra attackers on the flanks uh, theirs was a, a back five and there was to be no discussion about it but I think they could go to a back four this year I think they have the 
they have a good goalkeeper. Um, they have a good group of centre backs: Lachelle, Char, uh, Lujan, and Fernandez. Any two of that four works. I think Lachelle is obviously a guaranteed starter because he's the captain. Lujan is probably the best of the other three, uh, but he's the most injury prone. Fernandez had a really good season. I think he's probably the worst of the three overall, but he was probably the best of them last year. Um, they definitely need fullbacks. Their right back situation is not quite as bad as West Ham's because Mankio is a decent defender. DeAndre Red- Yedlin is a sprinter who's masquerading as a footballer. So they could probably do with adding uh, in, in the right back spot. They definitely need to go and buy a left back. There's just there's nobody at that club that you could look at and say, well, that's our left back option. We're going to go with him. Um, Rico Henry from Brentford would be my suggestion there. I think he would be a really nice fit. And I don't think he'll cost the earth. But obviously, as I mentioned yesterday, uh, they are rumoured to be looking at a Greek left-back whose name I will not try and pronounce again for fear of butchering it. And I will warn you uh, that I will butcher players' names. It's not my fault. Uh, It's my accent. It does not allow me to fully enunciate people's names properly. That's just how it is. If you come from Navin, you understand it. If you don't, that's your issue. Um... Yeah, Newcastle in midfield, then it looks like Maddie Longstaff will stay. So you add him to Sean Longstaff and John Joe Shelby. That's three good players to use in the midfield area. Uh, the wide positions are questionable. So maximum on the left is, is obviously absolutely fine. It's a matter of where you play Almiron, because if you play him up front, you don't have a whole lot of goals. If you play him on the wing, I think you'll get more out of him. He's a little bit lightweight, but I think you'll get more out of him and I think the team will benefit more. But I think it does mean that your right back has to be really good defensively. Not saying he doesn't work work hard, he does. He'll track back, he'll do his job, but he's a little bit lightweight. Um, I think you'd need a really strong defensive right back in, in that situation. But if they play him on the right up front, but the plus one is so hard to find for them, they need to find a goal scorer. And the problem for them is they don't have a whole ton of money by the looks of things. Uh, Rian Brewster from Liverpool on loan, I think, would be a really, really good fit there. Or Eddie and Kethia from, from Arsenal on loan. If they get one of those two other options, maybe go for Batshuayi. Chelsea might be willing to sell him on the cheap with one year left on his contract. It's going to be an interesting one. Something they definitely need to address. Though. They need to get more goals into that team. Uh, John Joe Shelby scored six goals last year. was their top scorer in the Premier League. That happens again. You're going down. I'm sorry. You're going down if your top scorer is getting six goals back to back years. Can't happen. Uh, moving then to Monday, we have Brighton against Chelsea and Sheffield United against Wolves. Um, the Sheffield United Wolves game, I think, will be really interesting. The battle of the two back threes. Two really good managers, but in different ways. Nuno is phenomenally good at setting his team up and planning for a game. And his plan A is excellent. The problem Nuno has is that he doesn't adapt well in games. And if plan A doesn't work, then plan B is just more of plan A. So I think that's something he needs to work on for his own development. Um, I think they're going to need a couple of players in this summer. I I think they need at least one, if not two, centre-backs. And the big thing for them then is keeping hold of Neves, keeping hold of Adama Traore and keeping hold of Raul Jimenez. To keep those three, they're really, really good players. They're players that could grace pretty much any team in the league. Um, I think 
Wolves could maybe do it an upgrade at left wing back, although Ruben Venegra is really talented. So maybe it's time to make the move to him just to give yourself another alternative. Everything goes through Doherty. And if he's having an off day or teams double up on him, then it becomes quite difficult. And if Adam is not in the mood, then it, again, it becomes doubly difficult. Whereas if you can get something going down the left that you can ha- have as a regular outlet, and like I say, Venegra could be the answer there, then maybe it just makes you a little bit more difficult to play against. Um, Chris Wilder, on the other hand, I think is one of the best at in-game management. I think his in-game changes are fantastic. I think he's a really good innovator tactically. As, and it's not just about underlapping centre-backs. It's what he uses, how he uses his midfield. Um, the way he plays the strikers, either as a two, one up, one off, then he'll switch them around. He'll have them both move wide and basically play with an empty front position and try and use pace then to break in behind the lines. Uh, this should be a really, really fascinating game. Um, I assume that the times will get moved. I assume they won't both be 8 p.m. kickoffs, that we will uh, maybe get a six and an eight. I think that would be would be great if we get to watch both of these games because I think Brighton-Chelsea is a really exciting game as well. Chelsea are making big moves in the transfer market and um, it looks like they're going to add Kai Havertz to their squad and he's, he's a remarkable player. You add him, you add Werner. Pulisic, they obviously have Zajic locked up as well. Question marks over the midfield, big question marks over the defence. If Chilwell comes in, then that's the two full-back positions boxed off with him and Reese James. But the centre-back, I don't see it. And the goalkeeping position, well, there might not be a worse one in England than what's going on at Chelsea. Not that Kepa's the worst keeper in the league. He's absolutely not. He has been for the last season, but he's absolutely not. Kepa's a good goalkeeper, but he just hasn't it hasn't worked for him at Chelsea. Part of that is he hasn't had the defence in front of him. Part of it is maybe his own personality. Um, but that's something Chelsea needs to address. They've got a lot of work to do this summer. It's For a team that finished fourth, it's surprising how much work they had to do this summer. Um, big, big, big year two for Lampard. And it is on Lampard, actually, that I want to move on to my next topic, which is tribalism. Because one thing we're all guilty of as football fans is dying on a hill for our club, our players, our past players, our heritage, whatever it may be. And it can lead to really nasty places. I mean, if you go back, I don't know, eight years ago, Talking about football on Twitter was actually very enjoyable for the most part. You could talk to fans of other clubs. You'd have interest in back and forth. Obviously, that was difficult with the 140 character limit you had back then. But it was always interesting. You could have interesting conversations. You could build up followers from a variety of clubs. Now, though, it's, it's like tribal warfare. You get United fans are just, you know, always looking to argue with anybody. Liverpool fans the same. Arsenal fans the same. Should anybody dare question their own club, then, you know, they all band together and it's just toxic, toxic place. And it's not just Chelsea fans versus Arsenal fans. It's Arsenal fans versus Arsenal fans. It's Liverpool fans versus Liverpool fans. Spurs fans versus Spurs fans. 
And I assume it's the same for every club. You pick a side and you go to war. If you're a Liverpool fan, the big point of argument over the last couple of years has been Jordan Henderson. The pro-Henderson fans now believe that they are right because he had a good season and Liverpool won the league and he was the captain. And that, that, that absolves him of his past. The anti-Henderson fans look at it and say, oh, well, you know, he had a, a bad spell, then a good spell, then he got hurt. But that doesn't absolve him of the past four years before that. There's no winner in that. That's just an endless argument that's not going to go anywhere. The Arsenal thing was largely over Wenger. Part of it now is over the ownership. I'm not sure how anybody could be pro-Cronky, but there are people that are pro-Cronky. That's a hard name to say. Um, It's endless. You're never going to win those debates. For example, there has been a debate for about 10 years now, fed by the likes of Sky, Talk Sport, Gerrard versus Lampard versus Scholes. That's such garbage. For starters, Paul Scholes is not of the same era as the other two. Paul Scholes made his Manchester United debut in 1993. He is a generation before, a footballer generation, not a you know human generation, before Gerrard and Lampard. He shouldn't be in that conversation because he's not the same era. He also shouldn't be in the conversation because he's not the same position. Oh, but they're all midfielders. That's not how it works. Gerard's best years came as a right-side midfielder or an attacking midfielder. Lampard's best years as an attacking midfielder. Skulls as a central midfielder. Scholes played much deeper than the other two. Much deeper. He was a deep-lying playmaker before we knew what that was. And people will look at simple things like goal tallies. Oh, but Paul Scholes only scored this amount of goals and had that many assists. And here's Gerrard and Lampard with three times the numbers and blah, blah, blah. It's not relevant to who was the better player. It really isn't. They played different positions. Gerard and Lampard played as attacking midfielders who had two players dedicated to sitting behind them and letting them go and do that. Gerard had Alonso and Hammond and Alonso Mascherano. Lampard had Makaleli. He had Essien. For a time he had three behind him because they had Balak in there as well. They didn't play the same positions. They're all great players. Why can't it just be accepted that they're all great players who had great careers? I would say that Gerard was the most unique of in that he could do probably the most of the three. He could be, he could play on the wing. Neither of the other two could play on the wing. Gerard could play fullback. The other two couldn't play fullback. Gerard had the most pace by quite a distance. Probably the best crosser 
um, of the three. Probably the best long-range shooter of the three. Lampard was the best goal scorer of the three. Um, Frank's ability to, to arrive in the box late, find a little bit of space, and score was remarkable. Scholes was the best passer of the three. Now, Gerrard was an incredible passer as well. But Scholes was the best passer of the three. He's also the smartest of the three. And he's the best central midfielder of the three. Because the other two were not central midfielders. Gerrard moved there later in his career. And barring one good spell in, in the 13-14 season, he wasn't good there. And even then, he needed two in midfield with him to do a lot of the work. Uh, Lucas and, and Henderson, Henderson and Allen, uh, Henderson and continued a lot of the work and Gerard would sit back as a you know a deep lying playmaker and ping the ball around like a quarterback like Pirlo. Um but Paul Scholes was doing that role before Pirlo. Paul Scholes began as an attacking midfielder. I think he actually began as a second striker. But Ferguson moved him back next to Keane and he ran the game for Manchester United from that midfield role. Keane was a box to box powerhouse. Even after the knee injury slowed him, he would still get box to box. Skulls would sit and he would hold and he would dictate the game. And it's funny because we've fallen in love with Pirlo and Xavi and Alcantara and Verratti, players who do that now. Paul Skulls was doing that in the 90s. He was years ahead. He was doing that in the 90s. People fell in love with Pirlo in that Milan team in the 2000s. Scholes was doing it four or five years before him. You look at the United midfield that Scholes played and the best variation of it is Beckham on the right, Giggs on the left, Keane and Scholes in midfield. It's the best midfield I have seen in the Premier League. I don't think we've seen a midfield that good. The closest thing will be the Lundberg, Vieira, Gilberto Silva, um, Bobby Perez midfield that Arsenal put together in their unbeaten team. That's three world-class players. Lundberg, a good player, not a great player. But the United midfield was all world-class players. Beckham Beckham was incredible at what he did. Keane, was, Keane, for me, is the best midfielder we've seen in the Premier League era. The best captain, the best leader, the best winner. Giggs is the most talented player. And if you look at that United team... Giggs was the most talented of the midfield four. God-given natural talent. Ryan Giggs was sensational. If you remember when he broke into that United team, within weeks there was talk of AC Milan breaking the world record transfer fee to buy him back when Milan did that type of thing. He was sensational. Injuries slowed him, but he still had an incredible career. Keane was the most important um, as the leader, as the captain, as the energy, as the powerhouse. And probably the best in terms of, you know, the overall impact. But Scholes was the best footballer in the group. Beckham was the biggest star, obviously. But Scholes, as a footballer, ability with the ball at his feet, Paul Scholes was the best of that group. Paul Scholes was a remarkable footballer. And again, you can point to his lack of goals across his career and say that he only had two Premier League seasons where he scored over 10 goals. And that's fine. 
but also acknowledge that he had eight seasons where he scored over 10 goals in all competitions. He didn't score the numbers of Gerrard and Lampard because it but he didn't play their position. Now, it looked at one point like Ferguson was going to move him into that role when they bought Juan Veron. And it was going to be Veron and Keane with skulls ahead of them. And had it worked, I think it would have been remarkable, but Veron didn't settle properly in England. Remarkably good player. I mean, you go back and look at him at Sampdoria, at Parma, at Lazio in that incredible title winning team, one of my favourite teams of all time. Um, Veron was a great player. But he just didn't settle in England, didn't work at United, didn't work at Chelsea. And Scholes went back into playing in midfield and doing his job. And he did it brilliantly. And we get trapped in this tribalistic nonsense of people wanting to argue about him versus Gerrard versus Lampard. When, again, not the same era, not the same generation of players. Not the same type of players, not the same position, not the same responsibility, not the same request, not the same job. Why not just appreciate what he was as a player instead of trying to compare him to two guys with gaudier stats? Why do we always feel the need to try and put down somebody to big up our own guy? Like, it's fine to say, Gerard is my favourite of the three. But I appreciate that the other two were also incredible footballers. You can say that. It won't get you your likes and your retweets on Twitter. But it'll also mean that you're actually been honest and not an idiot. You can say that Lampard was the best. You can say that Scholes was the best. You shouldn't really be having the debate anyway, because like I say, not the same era, not the same position. But we've been in this endless cycle of this debate for years now. And... Scholes is always the one that gets disparaged. Always the one that gets disparaged. And people say, oh, well, he retired from England because he couldn't get in the team. Well, that's fine. What about it? That's not the be-all and end-all of things. It's not his fault the manager made bad decisions. But he was also 31. Sorry, he was 30. He was 30 when he retired from international football. Lampard and Gerrard were in their early 20s at that point. He was older anyway. And England were going nowhere at the time. So he probably looked at it and thought, you know what, I'll just focus on club football. But there's a reason that he is spoken about the way he is by people like Xavi, Zidane, Pirlo, his peers in the game, the guys who played against him. There's a reason if you ask any of the Manchester United players that played with them, who is the best player you played with? Most of them will say Paul Scholes. You ask any of the class of 92, who's the most talented? Giggs. Who's the biggest star? Beckham. Who is the best? Paul Scholes. Without a doubt. And if he had been born French, Italian or Spanish, there would be a far greater appreciation for who he is as a player, what he was as a player, I should say, and what he brought to the game. Because don't think that guys like Alcantara and Javi and Pirlo weren't influenced by Paul Scholes. Didn't look up to Paul Scholes. Didn't view him as, you know, if I can get to his level, I'm an incredible player. And if I can get beyond that, I'm an all-time great. 
Paul Scholes is one of the best players we have seen in the Premier League era and should be respected as so. And the only reason he's not is tribalism. And tribalism is a dreadful, dreadful thing that we really should be doing our best to get rid of. Because it makes no fucking sense. I think that's me for today. Um, thank you, as always, for, for tuning in. I'll be back tomorrow on Wednesday. Uh, make sure you check out eplindex.com. Lots of good uh, good writing going up there. I've got an article pretty much every day. Don't know whether that's among the good writing, but Jake Jackman and and Dan, they do, they do fantastic work. Uh, thank you, as always, to Producer Guy. Does a remarkable job keeping me on time and not letting me ramble too much. Thank you to uh, to you for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time. See you tomorrow. Podcast Network.